You're listening to the Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com. Wonderful, wonderful Copenhagen, friendly old girl of town. Neath her tavern light on this merry night, let us clink and drink one down. To wonderful, wonderful Copenhagen, salty old queen of the sea. Once I sailed away, but I'm home today, singing Welcome, my friends. Welcome to another edition of the Corbett Report. I am your host, James Corbett, podcasting to you, as always, from the sunny climes of Western Japan on this 13th day of December, 2009. I'd like to welcome all the listeners back to the Corbett Report and invite them again, as always, to check into the websites CorbettReport.com, AlqaedaDoesn'tExist.com, ReportageBook.com, and now ClimateGate.tv. I'd also like to ask listeners to support those websites that support us, including KROX Radio 1 at zeropointradio.com, Cascadia Public Radio at cascadiapublicradio.org, Radio for All at radioforall.net, and archive.org. Today will be a bit of a departure from our usual routine, as we will be dispensing with the usual formalities and moving straight into the material. And also, we will be dispensing with my audio commentary on the material. We'll just be presenting the video and audio directly. And that is because I have just returned from Kobe, where I have just attended the third 9-11 Truth Conference, this time with Richard Gage. And I have an interview with Richard Gage, which I'll be putting up on the website this week. So please stay tuned for that. But at the moment, I'm extremely exhausted and things are right down to the wire. So we will be dispensing with the commentary and I will just be presenting the audio and video footage directly. Before we start today, I'd just like to thank all of those listeners who have, again, continued to flood the website with comments and emails and support uh, for this website and for the things that we're doing. We've received an incredible amount of support and feedback as of late and simply too much to even begin to respond to it all personally as this is a one-man show. But I would just like to use this opportunity to thank everyone for all of the support. It is greatly and deeply appreciated and helps to motivate me in what I'm doing. I'd also like to thank all of those who have sent in their Arrest the Crimatologist contest entries. All of them have been phenomenal, and I'm humbled to be a part of such an incredible group of people who are out there taking action, getting involved, and spreading the message on ClimateGate and the issues surrounding it. So once again, thank you to everyone who has entered the contest. And of course, there's still time to enter the contest as it doesn't end until the Copenhagen conference ends later this week. So if you are interested, please take a look at the Arrest the Crimatologist video or the article on the website. And I'll be putting up the contest entries that we've received so far in an article on the website sometime this week whenever I get a chance. So please stay tuned for that as well. On one final introductory note today, 
I would like to do something that I haven't done on the podcast for many, many months, and that is ask for some financial support. It has indeed been quite a long time since I've directly asked for any support, although I have been blessed in the intervening months with listeners who have continued to send in donations through the PayPal button on CorbettReport.com. So all of those donations are extremely appreciated. And once again, I'd like to take a moment to thank everyone who has sent in their financial support because it really is important as I really do live paycheck to paycheck and a lot of the money that I make goes into funding the websites and the various technologies that make them possible. But right now I'm asking for your support insofar as I have not one, but two videos that I'm hoping to shoot in the coming weeks that unfortunately I am not able to fund out of my own pocket as they will require some travel in Japan. So if there are listeners out there with a few dollars to spare and room in their heart to fund the Corbett Report's endeavors, I would greatly and sincerely appreciate any donation that you were able to make. Once again, there is a PayPal donate button on the front page of CorbettReport.com through which donations can be received. And at the moment, unfortunately, I don't have any means set up for accepting any other type of donation. So only electronic donations are possible at this time. But once again, any amount of money would be extremely appreciated as I attempt to make these videos possible. And finally, I'd also like to take this opportunity to announce that the Corbett Report podcast will be going on winter hiatus after today's episode and will not be coming back until next month. So there will be a few weeks off from the podcast, which I will use for some much needed rest and recuperation from the extremely hectic few months that we've been having here. But also, I will be continuing to make videos, conduct interviews, and write articles, so you can continue to expect more from the Corbett Report homepage during this winter hiatus. But right now, without further ado, let's get into the meat and potatoes of today's episode, which is, of course, about the Copenhagen Conference, which is taking place right now and is being set up as one of the key vehicles for furthering the agenda of global government. And I don't think I need to explain to my listeners just how important this event is. Anyone who has been listening to this podcast for any length of time knows just what is at stake as the global government starts to reveal itself in this carbon eugenics fraud. Today we'll be listening to some of the reporting that the Corbett Report has done, which much of which has been made possible by the incredibly helpful efforts of the, our volunteer reporter in Copenhagen, Dr. Jacek Skudlerak, who has been good enough to interview some of the people who are attending the alternative Copenhagen conferences and shot footage of those conferences and is doing other reporting besides. So we'll be listening to my interviews with him, as well as some of the footage that he's been able to take from Copenhagen. And once again, everyone should be quite thankful to Dr. Skudlerek for, for volunteering his time and for making this possible. We'll also be listening to various commentary and news footage regarding the conference and what is really at stake. But today, why don't we begin from the other side of the spectrum and listen to what this conference is supposedly about. Once again, that's it for me for, for today. So thank you again for joining me. And I really sincerely hope you will all come back again next month as this podcast resumes 
its remarkable journey. The heat is on for the UN's most senior climate official, Ivo de Boer, executive secretary of the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, is optimistic the climate summit will produce a signed and sealed deal. At the opening of the conference, along with Connie Hedgegaard, conference president and Denmark's former climate minister, de Boer urged the global community to help vulnerable countries. Time is up. People are speaking out. We spent two years negotiating, and now this process must deliver. Today, some 15,000 delegates from 192 nations gathered in Copenhagen for two weeks of negotiations on an agreement that would succeed the Kyoto Protocol and set new global carbon emission targets. At the heart of the deal must be a settlement between the wealthy countries and the developing world. We will need a list of ambitious emission reduction targets on the part of industrialized countries and we need to know what major developing countries will do to limit the growth of their emissions. Earlier this month, De Boer reiterated that the financial cost remains the biggest issue for all nations at the climate change summit. There is a, a growing public awareness on the part of the international uh, community. The, the, the balancing act that people are in is, is trying to address the issue um, as seriously as they can without causing too much of, a, of an economic cost in, in taking that action. De Boer said offers of finance for clean technology for poor countries were also coming through and that talks were progressing on a long-term vision of massive carbon cuts by 2050. At the end of the conference, the Global Coalition for Climate Change took over the stage, urging the panel to address the needs of islands on the Pacific Ocean affected by climate change. Talks will continue through to December 18th with more than 100 world leaders attending the last days of the summit. Marian Bamard, Reuters. And what are we doing instead? At Copenhagen, this December, weeks away, a treaty will be signed. Your president will sign it. Most of the third world countries will sign it because they think they're going to get money out of it. Most of the left-wing regimes around the world, like the European Union, will rubber stamp it. Virtually nobody won't sign it. I have read that treaty. And what it says is this. That a world government is going to be created. The word government actually appears as the first of three purposes of the new entity. The second purpose is the transfer of wealth from the countries of the West to third world countries in satisfaction of what is called coyly a climate debt because we've been burning CO2 and they haven't and we've been screwing up the climate. We haven't been screwing up the climate but that's the line. And the third purpose of this new entity, this government, is enforcement. How many of you think that the word election or democracy or vote or ballot occurs anywhere in the 200 pages of that treaty? Quite right, it doesn't appear once. So at last, the communists who piled out of the Berlin Wall and into the environmental movement and took over Greenpeace so that my friends who founded it left within a year because they'd captured it, now the apotheosis is at hand. They are about to impose a communist world government on the world. You have a president who has very strong sympathies with that point of view. He's going to sign. He'll sign anything. He's a Nobel Peace Laureate. Of course he'll sign it. And the trouble is this. 
if that treaty is signed, your constitution says that it takes precedence over your constitution. And you can't resile from that treaty unless you get the agreement of all the other states' parties. And because you'll be the biggest paying country, they're not going to let you out. So, thank you, America. You were the beacon of freedom for the world. It is a privilege merely to stand on this soil of freedom while it is still free. But in the next few weeks, unless you stop it, your president will sign your freedom, your democracy, and your prosperity away forever. And neither you nor any subsequent government you may elect will have any power whatsoever to take it back again. That is how serious it is. I have read the treaty. I've seen this stuff about government and climate debt and enforcement. They are going to do this to you whether you like it or no. But I think it is here, here in your great nation, which I so love and I so admire. It is here that perhaps at this 11th hour, at the 59th minute and the 59th second, you will rise up and you will stop your president from signing that dreadful treaty that purposeless treaty, for there is no problem with the climate, and even if there were, economically speaking, there's nothing we can do about it. So I end by saying to you the words that Winston Churchill addressed to your president in the darkest hour before the dawn of freedom in the Second World War. He quoted from your great poet Longfellow, Sail on, O ship of state. Sail on, O union strong and great humanity with all its fears with all the hopes of future years is hanging breathless on thy fate thank you this is james corbett of corbettreport.com coming to you on the 5th of december 2009 from here in japan but right now I'm joined by Dr. Jacek Skudlerek of Denmark, who is actually going to be reporting for the Corbett Report from the Copenhagen Conference, which will be taking place from the 7th to the 18th in Denmark. And Dr. Skudlerek has been good enough to volunteer his time to help interview some of the people and get some of the reporting directly from the scene. Uh, Dr. Skudlerek, thank you very much for joining me today. Not at all. Well, well, please tell us uh, how you came to, to get involved with this project and, and why you're interested in, in reporting from the scene of the Copenhagen UNFCCC conference. James, uh, this is a very difficult, difficult question. Uh, I don't know where to begin. Um, I would say, you know, I would say that the whole thing started started in my childhood. Uh, I happened to be born in uh, communist Poland. And uh, when I was a sufficiently uh, big boy to, um, to be told it, uh, my father said that whatever I hear in the, the television or read in the papers can be a lie. I think I have been immunized in this way. And thanks to this advice, I, throughout my life, I had a skeptical, um, uh, how it's called, 
um, attitude to excuse my English. I never speak English, uh, so it's it's a bit uh, difficult for me. But um, uh, on this on this skeptical uh, uh, background, I have built my my point of view and and my view of the world, and. Uh, uh, you know, throughout many many years uh, after my moving to Denmark, I I was not uh, engaged in any uh, alternative activities. Uh, I was reading newspapers, uh, hearing radio. Everything was fine. I, Denmark is a very nice country. It's it still is. And uh, uh, then came nine eleven, and. Um, when I saw the buildings uh, falling down uh, in a very, very strange way, and then I uh, uh, saw all the papers in Denmark and the television uh, telling that it was the Arab terrorists and no bombs, it was the aeroplanes and fire, it was so absurd that uh, that I thought that, that I have to use my old uh, father my father's advice again and i began to looking into the internet and uh, i found uh, people who thought the same and uh, there were thousands and then millions uh, and um, you know throughout uh, some years after 911 uh, i was in a passive mode um I was reading and and uh, listening to YouTube. Um, um, I chanced upon your website, upon uh, Republic Broadcasting, and um, uh, I was just a passive consumer and I was seeing what to do. You know, I was I was father of one, then two uh, children, and uh, a, a hospital doctor. There was not not so much time to to be active, and I, I was just consuming and, and getting wiser. And, uh, and now, uh, with this uh, economic crisis uh, uh, coming to a head, and the, the ecological uh, uh, thing coming to a head at the same time, uh, I can see that what was uh, written in the report from Iron Mountains and other uh, sources is getting a, a reality. Uh, I'm terrified. You know, I am, I have gone into an active mode active mode and uh, and uh, you know it, it is just like defending your cave uh, when uh, some uh, uh, um, uh, tribe uh, uh, foreign tribe is coming uh, and is, is trying to uh, to uh, uh, attack you i'm defending my cave and my tribe that's it well, certainly, I think uh, there are a lot of people who are in that position right now, and certainly as we're dealing with this conference, which is now putting really trillions of dollars in the, the future economy of the world into question based on things that we now know we were very uh, w reasonable to be skeptical about, given the leaked emails and documents from the Climate Research Unit, I think a lot of people are extremely concerned with what's happening, which is why it's very important that we do become the media and we do start reporting these things from, from our own perspective rather than merely passively receiving this from a controlled corporate media that has a vested interest in putting these things through in a certain way. So it's great to have you there on at the scene of the, the, the forthcoming crime, so to speak. So it's, it's good to get that reporting.
<clears throat> so please tell us a little bit about uh, what's happening in Copenhagen right now, the preparations that are underway, and what, what's the sense of the people there about this upcoming conference? Um, James, uh, the people are extremely passive. Uh, uh, where I work, at the hospital, on the street, in the bus, uh, uh, they are not talking about this conference. It's uh, almost a non uh, a non-event, not not a subject, but it's very typical of of the Danish Danish uh, uh, public opinion. Uh, you do not express your political opinion uh, to uh, to friends or or uh, or, 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 or uh, people at work where you work. Um, the whole official Denmark is extremely happy. Why? Um, because they are going to get a lot of money. It's it's, it's like uh, organizing Olympics, you know. Um, it's like um, Larry Silverstein, Silverstein, uh, who who is getting six billion on on a crime uh, which is killing millions. Um, so that's it. That's my uh, answer. Absolutely. Well, um, I, I, I do understand that the, the, what's happening on the ground there is uh, perhaps not being reported in a, a fair and accurate way by the international media. And, and we are seeing now that uh, the international media is stressing the idea that they're, they're preparing for large-scale riots and things like that of, of that nature. But I assume that uh, that's not the impression that you're getting. The borders have been uh, secured. So uh, I, I guess a, a very few uh, known activists are getting inside the country. It's a little country, very, very easy to defend. Um, uh, you, you have just a few points of, of entrance. Uh, so uh, a few people from the alternative movement will be able to attend here and, and demonst demonstrate. Uh, they are getting help from the German police, the Dutch police, the Swedish police, uh, I think they are eager just to get it done quietly and easily. Do the crime in, 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 in the most uh, in, inconspicuous, inconspicuous way. And in Denmark it will be easy. All right. Well, Dr. Skrudelrich, I'm afraid that's all the time we have for tonight, but I, I'd very much like to, to thank you for, for agreeing to do this and, and for your reporting from the scene. Uh, we already have some of your reports up on the article section of CorbettReport.com, and I'd like to announce to all the viewers and listeners out there that uh, there is a new website, uh, ClimateGate.tv, which I have launched just this weekend, which will be a reference site not only for all things related to the ClimateGate scandal, but also for all of the coverage that uh, Dr. Skrudelrich will be doing for us in Copenhagen. So please go to climategate.tv for the latest news and updates on this issue. Uh, Dr. Skrudelrich, thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you very much, James. Thank you. Hello, this is James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, continuing our ongoing coverage of the ClimateGate scandal and the Copenhagen conference, which is taking place in Denmark uh, with the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change meeting to discuss a successor agreement to the Kyoto Protocol. 
And as my listeners will know by now, I have launched a new website, climategate.tv, in order to keep up to date with not only the ongoing and developing ClimateGate scandal, but of course all things to do with the Copenhagen Conference. And one part of that is the citizen reporting that we have going on from the scene in Copenhagen, Denmark. We have Dr. Jessik Skudlerek, who is joining us today and is reporting for the Corbett Report and Republic Broadcasting. Uh, Dr. Skudlerek, thank you for joining me once again. Thank you, James. All right. Thank well, you. I understand that, uh, of course, not only is the Copenhagen Conference proper taking place in the uh, coming week or two weeks, we also have a number of alternate conferences, uh, including one that's uh, taking place on Sunday in the Danish Parliament itself. Tell us a little bit about that conference. Um, on Sunday, the 6th, uh, we will be having a um, conference um, in the buildings of Parliament, um, uh, it's organized by the third largest uh, Danish uh, political party, uh, which is actually um, uh, helping the present uh, coalition to uh, to govern in Denmark. So it's a, it's a very important party, but it's a, a, a how is called um, patriotic and um, and and a party based on traditional values. I would call it. The conference uh, will be, it's an alternative event. It's, of course, uh, it's, the speakers are not with the IPCC, uh, and then they are, uh, they are of the opinion that the climate change is, uh, man-made climate change does not exist. Uh, there will be very important speakers, just like, like, uh, Dr. Singer, uh, Professor Singer, uh, Professor Pielke, uh, Stephen McIntyre, uh, and of course uh, Lord Moncton. And uh, I will be uh, uh, doing a video from all the proceedings, and it will be posted on the Corbett Report website. Uh, it's, it's you, James. Um, but uh, afterwards, um, I, I hope to be able to make a um, individual interview with uh, the participants uh, i have i have been in touch with lord moncton and uh, i will talk to him well, that is very exciting mm -hmm. because, of course, Lord Moncton is one of the people who is leading the charge against the, the Copenhagen Conference and, and trying to expose the global government agenda that's really unfolding at the UNFCCC. So it's uh, extremely exciting. Also, of course, uh, people like Stephen McIntyre, who is really one of the central figures in, in the Climate Gate affair, um, having been the researcher whose research was really what prompted the CRU to, to go into panic mode and to start uh, threatening to delete any information they had related to their data and things of that sort, which of course is now le leading them into some very, uh, very big uh, uh, problems and, and potentially criminal problems. So, so very interesting to, to hear what, uh, for example, Stephen McIntyre will have to say, and of course the other speakers. And I understand there's also another alternate conference that's going to be taking place uh, later on in the week, in tu on Tuesday and Wednesday. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, yes. Tuesday and Wednesday uh, is uh, a, a two-day conference in, in the buildings of Danish Literary Society, uh, organized by three 
uh, non-governmental organizations which uh, have existed for years. Uh, one of them is NIPCC. Um, uh, I, I won't mention the others because because uh, it's it, let's not go, go into the details. The most important things the thing is that we will have again the very important speakers, uh, including Lord Moncton, in, including Fred Singer. Uh, we will be doing the video and we will be doing interviews for for the Corbett re report. Excellent. Well, of course, we're very much looking forward to that as well. And, of course, during this entire time, there will be uh, the, the main conference taking place. Uh, tell us a little bit about uh, what you expect to, to be occurring at the main conference and, and whether any press will be allowed in there. Um, you know, um, it, it looks like they, they are limiting uh, the access to, to the conference. I'm, I'm an official representative of uh, Republic Broadcasting Network, and I, I, I didn't even try to apply for, uh, for uh, an admittance. Uh, Jerome Corsi from World Net Daily has not been granted access, so it says something about uh, the mode they are in. They are, uh, they are afraid. They don't want uh, unpleasant questions. Absolutely. And, uh, that's, that's exactly the case, and I think that's uh, reflected in also we saw recently that uh, Al Gore has suddenly cancelled his appearance in, in Copenhagen without really citing a specific reason as to why he's not going after having sold $1,200 tickets to, to VIP members to meet and greet with the former vice president. So very interesting, and, and certainly I think that has something to do with the fact that no matter where Al Gore goes in the United States these days, he's being confronted about the climate gate scandal and it's obviously highly uncomfortable for him so i think there is definitely a move at the moment to try to downplay this scandal by keeping people with uncomfortable questions away from the conference so that's a, a very interesting development all right well dr skrudlerek we are looking forward to all of your reporting and, and any interviews and videos that you can get out from this conference or the alternative conferences so once again i'd like to thank you for keeping us updated live from denmark this week I thank you, James. It's a great opportunity for, for us, all of us. It certainly is. Let's make the most of it. Yes. Thanks. Uh, you have been long with the climate research and the policies around it. How is your take on uh, when did this present trend, this tide, which are upon us. When did it begin? A little over 20 years ago, things started to get warm in the sense of uh, the politics building up. Actually, it hasn't gotten to war at all. The last real meeting in the 20th century was between 1920 and 1940. Then it cooled for 35 years. Then it suddenly warmed over a one or two year period, which has nothing to do with humans, of course, the change in the ocean currents. And it hasn't done very much since then, except for occasional volcanic eruptions, which are certainly not uh, human caused, and so called El Nino events, ocean uh, warming, southern ocean warming, 
which again occur every three or five years on a natural basis. I am more talking about politics. The president of politics has gotten Egypt. warmer and warmer, um, particularly as many people, well, maybe some people, discovered they could benefit financially from this global climate scare. I'm talking about people uh, in banks who are trading emission rights and get commissions. And this is a big business. This is uh, billions and billions of dollars a year. I'm talking about people who manufacture wind turbines, and I'm talking about people who set up wind turbines and collect subsidies from governments, and people who build distilling plants for bioethanol, another useless activity. So a lot of useless activities, wasting a lot of money, have been started by people who have figured out how to benefit financially from the global warming scale. But it must have origin in one place, in maybe one head or a couple of heads. Uh, do you remember a paper uh, called Report from Iron Mountain? It was released, released or, or hacked or stolen in, uh, I think, 1961. I don't remember that. Uh, a paper... Uh, I'm not old enough. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that said that, uh, that uh, the uh, organizers would be, uh, would like would want to get the world government in using the, uh, the combination of ecological and uh, uh, positive contrived and economic uh, crisis. We but have... Maybe right, and maybe that was uh, a group that planned this kind of thing. In any case, this seems to be the direction we're moving in. The Copenhagen uh, draft treaty I don't know if you've seen it. It's yes. uh, about 180 pages. I have not seen it myself, but I've read reports, reliable reports, of what is in it. And it speaks about world government. Yes. And of course, if you believe, I do not believe that, but if you were to believe that there's a climate threat, a global threat, then you must take global action. That's what they want. And to take global action, you need global governance, which means, in other words, a world government uh, of people who can tell you what to do, who can direct you. It, and we're very much opposed to that. It looks like they have been trying this world government at different venues. Uh, through the economic crisis, uh, through uh, after the Second World War, uh, through the United Nations, after the First World War, uh, through the League of Nations, it, it didn't happen, uh, they did not succeed. Well, do you think they are close now? Politics is not my main business. My main I know. Business is science. However, I've been around for a long time. I was in World War II. Accurately. And um, since World War II, Western Europe has been possessed by the idea of a, um, some super government. The European Union, for example, is a, is a good example of a super government of uh, 
administrators who are not elected directly by the people who tell people what to do. So I think Western Europe is going in the wrong direction. My way of thinking, the only countries that are resisting this are Australia, New Zealand, the United States, and Eastern Europe, interestingly enough, particularly Poland and the Czech Republic. You know, Eastern Europe had a long and bad tradition of being occupied, being uh, occupied subject by, by communists. By communists, yes, 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 of course. Yeah, you take Václav Klaus, for example, the president of the Czech Republic. Well, he knows what it means to be occupied by a communist regime. And these people who have been occupied, who have been under communist rule, uh, value freedom. They want freedom. And they're right. This is what we want also in the United States. And for some reason, Western Europe seems to like the idea of governance, right? global governance. I think it may have to do with the fact that Western Europe has suffered greatly uh, through two world wars, and they feel, maybe not unreasonably, that having a super government will avoid another world war. And so did Eastern Europe, and even more. more but, but they are not so eager to pursue this. Yes. 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 I have lived under this uh, communist regime, regime for 30 years, almost. And uh, this is absolutely not my idea of a good life and, and good politics. Uh, but to turn back to the present, to the present uh, climate meeting, what can be done? You see the tendency in the United States also from part of the population and unfortunately right now also from the White House to move into that direction. But there are also strong forces opposing it and I think that the forces opposing the present U.S. policy are strong enough to defeat it. And I think in our Senate is independent enough to defeat any scheme for controlling, uh, uh, say, emissions of carbon dioxide, other schemes for, quote, saving the climate, hmm. as they call it. Unfortunately, our government is also spending a lot of money encouraging the very people that we should be fighting against. In other words, we're giving subsidies to the wind farms, we're giving subsidies to ethanol, we're encouraging emission trading. Uh, so we have to fight this thing, and that's what we're doing. Our basis for fighting this is science. We try to show people, we try to convince them that there's no scientific backing at all, nothing to back a human, a, let's say a significant human influence on climate. Of course, there is always some influence on climate by humans, whether it is by cutting trees or by cutting forests and producing agriculture, or whether it's by building cities. Humans have some influence on the environment, but there is no global climate influence that we can detect from any human activity. When you listen to the new head of the European Union, he openly states that world government is being established. When you listen to Al Gore, he speaks of global governance built around the Copenhagen Treaty. When you listen to Ban Ki-moon, he states the same thing. There's no more 
any room for denial. World government has arrived. World government is here. It is unelected. It is tyrannical. And it wishes to control the planet through an iron grip on resources. But here is the big development. Remember that the private IMF and World Bank holding companies for the private central banks of the planet have been caught in Nigeria and Brazil, Argentina, you name it, Asia, Latin America, Africa, the Middle East, Eastern Europe, Russia, engineering crises, destroying economies so they can vertically integrate them and criminally consolidate them. In 2002, Greg Palast of the BBC was given several thousand pages of leaked documents. Simultaneously, Nobel Prize winner for economics, Joseph Stiglitz went public, saying that the IMF and World Bank were engineering financial collapse and the destruction of industrialized society so they could consolidate control. Now, in the last year or so, the United Nations and the private financial backers that control it, because the United Nations General Assembly is just a debating society, the United Nations Security Council actually holds all the power, and they admit that, told the third world, oh, you're going to get back at America and Europe and Japan that have been looting you as if the people of those countries had done it and not the banking and oligarch elites that are based in them. You're going to get back at them. They're going to have to pay massive taxes on food, on energy, on travel, on uh, financial transactions to you to help you to get the General Assembly and the members of the General Assembly to go to this Copenhagen event and to sign on to this. Now, in my film, Fall of the Republic, we detail from previous documents from the UN and from the IMF and World Bank, Goldman Sachs, J.P. Morgan Chase, Bank of London, and others, the Bank of England based in London, that private central banks were simply setting up their own private global government and that the populations of the world, both developing and developed, would have to pay taxes in a form of new derivatives that actually Enron head Ken Lay came up with Al Gore in the mid-1990s. This was a system of total hegemonic financial rule uh, by this establishment. But uh, on December 8, 2009, during the second day of this global government founding event that the UN itself is calling the greatest moment for world government, the most important meeting in world history, the media is calling that that because it is. This is the establishment of this tyrannical world system. When you read the latest leaked communique that is an addendum to the treaty itself, which openly establishes hundreds of new taxes, 700 new bureaucracies, 700 plus, you learn in this draft copy that was not for public distribution, and I'm reading from London Guardian, Copenhagen Climate Summit in Disarray after Danish TextLink, developing countries react furiously to leaked draft agreement that would hand more power to rich nations, sideline the UN's negotiating role, and abandon the Kyoto Protocol. Reading from The Guardian, and they have a link to the text of the secret document. The document is also being interpreted by developing countries as setting unequal limits on per capita carbon emissions for developed and developing countries. That's what the eugenicists have always planned. That is what they have always stated, that this is really a way to freeze development in the third 
and developing world so that these countries can be vassals of the larger global private corporate uh, imperium. And it continues, meaning that people in rich countries would be permitted to emit nearly twice as much under the proposals. And it goes further and states that the UN is just a front company and will have no power. See, the third world thinks they control the UN because they're in the General Assembly. And that the IMF, World Bank, and other private corporations will actually control the global system and issue the credits. Force developing countries to agree to specific emission cuts and measures that were not part of the original UN agreement. So it is a classic bait and switch. That is from the London Guardian today. You can link through by clicking. We also have this up on Infowars.com and PrisonPlanet.com and read the secret treaty for yourself. But when you read the official framework convention on climate change, when you read the nearly 200 pages, it states a 2% tax on all nations of the planet. And once nations have signed on, they cannot remove themselves voluntarily. They have to have a unanimous vote by the other members to allow them to leave. So it's like a roach motel. The slaves go in, the slaves don't get out. And it states a 2% tax on the complete GDP of every nation, a 2 to 10% tax on all fuel, gasoline, uh, diesel, natural gas, when most families are already on the edge of bankruptcy because of what the central banks have done with the derivatives bubble that broke in the fall of 2008. They state that a global regulatory body will control all transportation, starting with massive global taxes on all international and national air travel and a surveillance tracking grid, tracking systems by license plate reader and RFID in the cars to track cars by the mile and to tax you. Part of it to be shared with the local governments, national governments, and the private international government. So all of this is happening. All of this is in the legislation. And remember, this treaty until a month ago was secret. They wouldn't issue it to the public, but it was leaked, and they confirmed this is their treaty. The first person to stand against any great evil is always the most courageous. To be the first one to call out any great injustice is to invite ridicule, scorn, even persecution. It's difficult to imagine today just how brave were the first slave owners to call for the abolition of slavery, the first men and women to advocate women's suffrage, the first activists to call for the end of apartheid. In the end, their cause is recognized as just, and these brave souls are lauded, often posthumously, as heroes. But in the beginning, no one wants to admit that they are a party, even unwittingly, to a great evil. The wildest injustices can be legitimized simply because they are popular. Today, just such a popular injustice exists. It has been infused into our culture and taken up as a cause. It is fervently believed in and advocated with great passion and force, and to speak out against it is to risk persecution and scorn, but speak out against it we must. The terrible injustice of our age has its roots in a most unlikely place. In the quaint villages and manicured gardens of the 19th century British gentry. Amongst that set lived one Francis Galton, 
a gentleman scientist who had investigated everything from meteorology to statistics. Shortly after his cousin, Charles Darwin, published his Origin of Species, Galton became fascinated with the idea that the survival of the fittest did not just take place between species, but within them. This idea became a pseudoscience, a study of the presumed racial characteristics of this group or that group, with an aim to explaining why the various peoples of the world occupy the positions that they do. In order to confirm their preconceived notions of their own self-worth, Galton and his friends started a new field of inquiry called eugenics. Unsurprisingly, it concluded that the rich and powerful were rich and powerful because they were genetically superior, and it offered a simple solution for improving the lot of humanity. Make sure that the affluent upper classes breed as much as possible, preferably within their own families, in order to preserve their superior stock. And make sure the lower classes breed as little as possible. This junk science, pandering as it did to the most rabid, the most racist, the most elitist interests of the moneyed class, became universally accepted in the Western world within a generation. Soon, country after country had implemented laws to allow the government to sterilize those citizens it deemed to be unfit. The true horrors of this strain of thought came to light when the German eugenicists, based at the Rockefeller-funded Kaiser Wilhelm Institute, gave the Nazi regime an ideological excuse to take the idea to its logical conclusion. Many of the Germans who went along with the Holocaust did so because they genuinely believed the scientists who were telling them that the Jews and gypsies, the communists and homosexuals, were genetically inferior and needed to be eliminated from the gene pool. After World War II, when the full magnitude of the slaughter that had taken place in the name of eugenics began to become apparent, the eugenicist pseudoscientists scrambled to find a way to re-legitimize their racist and classist drivel. They wrote openly in the journals of their once-esteemed eugenics societies that they would now have to continue their studies and practices in a more covert fashion. Eugenics had to become crypto-eugenics. This was accomplished in a number of ways. The British Eugenic Society, for one, merely changed its name to the Galton Institute. The American Eugenic Society morphed into the Population Council, a group set up by John D. Rockefeller III, where members continued to advocate the very same policies for reducing the population of third world countries as they always had, only now they did so in the name of fighting overpopulation rather than fighting bad genes. Julian Huxley, brother of the famous writer, helped organize UNESCO in 1945. In the founding document of UNESCO entitled, UNESCO, Its Philosophy and Its Purpose, he argues that one of the key aims of the United Nations Educational, Scientific and Cultural Organization would be the re-legitimization of eugenics, so that the idea would once again become thinkable. He also went on to co-found the World Wildlife Fund with Nazi SS officer Prince Bernhard of the Netherlands. Within a generation, science was once again ready to tell us why the only way to save humanity was to stop people from breeding. 
This time, the public was whipped into a furor not about Jews and gypsies, but about carbon dioxide and environmental sustainability. The cover had changed, but the racist, eugenicist text remained the same. In the logic of the eugenicists, the meaning of human life is itself transformed. Instead of something valuable, something precious, something to be desired and nurtured, fought for and celebrated, humanity is reimagined as a cancer, something inherently evil, the mere existence of which is a burden on the world. This, unsurprisingly, encapsulates the modern environmental movement's position almost perfectly. Human life is no longer something to be treasured, but something to be measured in carbon and then reduced. In the man-made global warming myth, humans are merely an obstacle to the proper functioning of nature. In the eugenicist fantasy, the earth is saved when people die. In both ideologies, if they really are separate, the ultimate genocide becomes thinkable. Now, the leaders of the world are meeting in Copenhagen to decide on the future of your world, of my world, of the world of our children and grandchildren. They are proposing a reorganization of the world's economy. Punishing austerity is being urged in all corners. Groups of population control eugenicists are now arguing for carbon offsets to be used to stop the developing world from having children. The choir of madness is growing by the day, and everything seems set to reach an intolerable crescendo. And then, in the darkest hour, just as it seems the eugenicists are about to take over, along comes an insider, a hero, at the University of East Anglia, to leak the emails and documents with which the entire man-made global warming myth is exposed, and the carbon reduction agenda is delegitimized. It is not always popular to stand against a great injustice, but it is always right. For the Corbett Report, I am James Corbett in Western Japan.
a point on, on the environmental movement in general, a question for any of the environmentalists, so-called, in, in the panel there. Uh, Prince Philip was one of the key founders of the Green Movement. He said that if he were to be reincarnated, he'd want to be reincarnated into a deadly virus to solve the overpopulation problem. Well, the point is that the Green Movement was founded by those in the eugenics movement. This is Hitler, Nazi race science, and this will destroy Africa. Can, can anyone make a comment? Uh, I, think, I think we'll just leave that as a statement if we can.